And so Isaiah uh, turns back to um, the, the future of Israel. And um, that's what chapter 54 is about. And I can't believe how far along we are. Yeah. So we have 12 chapters left in the whole book. And then we'll go back to the Psalms for a while. All right. Well, why don't we stand up and um, I'll read the word to you. Um, if you need to sit down, that's fine. You may notice a few verses in here that are quoted in the New Testament, not as fulfillment, but um, in the sense of just as it was then, uh, so it is now kind of thing. (laughs) That's a good ring. It's never happened before. Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood any more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you refuse, says the Lord. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphire. I will make your your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. (laughs) You shall be... Far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Well, Lord, thanks for your word. Again, Lord, as we've looked at so many of these chapters in the book of Isaiah, that in spite of Israel's past sin, that in the future your kindness will be bestowed upon them because of your promises that even precede their disobedience. So Lord, uh, teach us tonight from your word and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a cell phone, <laughs> that's so fun. Yeah, good, good. We're so uptight here, you know, yeah. 
What's that? Yeah, yeah. I get, whenever I hear a phone go off, uh, I get anxious. And so I hurry up and fiddle with my phone and try to make sure it's off. Yeah. All right. So um, as you can tell, it's the, it's the future, prosperity, peace, and safety of Israel. And uh, the only thing that we have to do from the text is to discover uh, when God is talking. What, what period of time is he talking about? So we'll, we'll figure that out tonight as we go. So verse 1, uh, he says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Okay, now I caught one earlier and what I had done was I was looking between translations and then when I was copying, pasting from my Bible software to the keynote present whatever, presenter, presentator. How do you say that? Um, The ESV sometimes got thrown in there, and so I might have an ESV copy and paste up there. Is that okay? Okay. If it's there, it's there. Okay, nobody's cringing. It'll be all right. Who uses ESV? Okay. It's a a great translation. Yeah. So I'm usually in ESV, NASB, and of course I teach out of the New King James. Yeah. And if I don't have... uh, a Greek New Testament in front of me, I look to the NIV because the grammar is so much better than um, uh, literal translations. So, but I don't usually bring up the NIV on the, the screen. So anyway, the first two verses here by way of, of figurative language speak of Israel's uh, future prosperity and regrowth. Uh, verse three uh, gives the conclusion of what is anticipated. It says the nation will grow prosper and expand, even, it says, to the inheritance of the nations. How many nations has Israel thus far inherited? Just the current one, okay? So I would assume right off the bat that we're not talking about the near future from Isaiah's time, but the remote, the the distant future, okay? Uh, The inheritance of nations can't refer to the period following the Babylonian captivity, Uh, Certainly not from any period from Isaiah's day until now. And so we're forced to push this further into the future. Uh, The nations they will inherit probably refers to the land that was originally promised to Abraham. Okay, The majority of all of the land promised to Abraham is currently in the hands of other nations. But that and, and Israel has actually never inherited all of the land that God promised, but he promised it. So we're waiting for the, that, that period of time to take, to take place, okay? Yep. God will give to Israel what he promised, all their land, prosperity within, peace and safety throughout. He says, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the approach of your widowhood any more. So the question is, why would they not remember the shame of their past? So as we look at, he's talking about Israel's youth, and then he's looking to the future. When you look at Israel as a nation in their youth, uh, it doesn't describe faithfulness, does it? It describes a history of shame, 
of embarrassment to the Lord, we might say, uh, of reproach and just evil. Okay, of course, they had their ups, but they had a lot more downs, right? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a pleasant history. So th- why would they not remember the shame of their past? He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Okay, so their renewed relationship with God that, of course, must occur through faith and repentance is going to eclipse and, uh, I'm sorry, it'll eclipse the shame and disgrace and the reproach of their past, okay? They're going to be forgiven of their many transgressions. They'll be renewed to the place of God's favor, and they will be walking with God. So like a, a young, wayward wife who was disposed of and put to shame and disgrace is going to be renewed to an exalted position. That's the promise here, okay? Now, when you go, especially through the prophets, it's, it's really the language of the prophets. When speaking of Israel's spiritual and faithfulness, God often says that Israel played the harlot. You guys remember that, that kind of language? Uh, that, that is, she, she prostituted herself with idols. Other times she was accused of, of adultery for the same reason. So spiritual adultery. Um, Israel is uh, called the wife of God. And so when she entertained idols of, of any sort, uh, God said, you've played the harlot, you have committed spiritual adultery. Okay, so that's uh, what he's referencing here in the past. Okay, that's what Israel has done. But because of the nature of God's promises prior to their, even their existence as a nation, uh, he's going to bring them back around. And just as a kind of a side note here, that I think is important to mention. While Israel is called the wife of God, what is the church called? The bride of Christ, that's right. And our wedding day, as it were, uh, will be after Christ's return. And there will be the wedding feast of the lamb and, and all of that stuff. I'm not gonna go into the eschatological significance of that, but, but the same spiritual concepts really uh, mentioned uh, in regard to Israel's unfaithfulness Uh, can be said about the church, and you can find some of that language in uh, the book of Revelation of the letters to the seven churches, right? Um, And it's not always good. We we are the betrothed of Christ. We we legally belong to him, as it were. So when the church does foolish, crazy things, um, when we uh, incorporate things into the church, um, that are foreign to God's prescription, they're contrary to his word, we commit this the similar sin to Israel. The reason I bring this up is because it's easy to look at Israel's past and, and go, well, shame on them. Um, but as we'll mention later, Paul says all of that stuff that happened with Israel is for our learning and for our admonition. So, It's there for an example to us, either what to do or what not to do. But most often, when the New Testament references all of that, it's what not to do, okay? One of the the greatest sins of the church is what is called religious syncretism. Religious syncretism. Now, uh, when when I say that, I don't mean what the Catholic Church has done 
um, throughout the centuries, wherever it's gone, and kind of absorbed some of the pagan, uh, the paganism of the culture that it finds itself in. Have you ever been to a Catholic church in Southeast Asia, in India, uh, in South America, uh, other places? You realize that Catholicism is not the same everywhere. Okay, they have a lot of the things that are the same with the catechism and that sort of thing, but there's this syncretism with the pagan culture around it. Okay. Now, when I talk about it, I'm not concerned with that so much because from the 7th century AD until the present time, the Catholic institution looks nothing like what is found in the pages of the New Testament. Okay? You can't find what they do and many of their beliefs in the text of Scripture. I'm referring to evangelicals, the evangelical church that has historically confessed the veracity, authority, the sufficiency of Scripture as the final and only rule for Christian faith and practice, what we believe and how we behave. We look to the scriptures um, for that alone. So how have evangelicals committed uh, spiritual adultery? What have they done? What's that? Okay, by not adhering to the scriptures? I agree, yeah. Uh, They've incorporated a host of ideas and practices that um, are really of the world. I think the biggest one that comes to mind is the heresy of relevance, uh, where we do all things to attract the world, and then by doing that, we, we end up becoming like the world, which is the very opposite of the church being God's peculiar people, being separate from the world and sanctified for God's glory. Okay? We've often become uh, indistinguishable from the darkness, though we've been called as light to the world itself. Okay? Light stands out from darkness. It disperses darkness, can't blend with it. So when the church cannot be distinguished from the world, the church has become darkness. And so too often the church has been unfamiliar, I believe, to Christ. Uh, we've not been able to defend our practice from the scriptures. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, we usually take this verse and apply it strictly to an unbeliever being married to a believer. It's not the context here, but he says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Okay, so of course it would apply to marriage, uh, but that's not the context here. He says, in what communion has light with darkness? And yet so many evangelical churches are trying to have communion, fellowship with darkness. Instead of bringing the gospel to the darkness, the church is inviting the darkness to essentially extinguish the light of the gospel. Um, the practice of relevancy, no matter you know, what the motive is, I always hear, well, God judges the heart, okay? But, I mean, you can't commit adultery with a good heart. Amen? Yeah. So no matter the, the motive, uh, it's always ended in compromise, which brings disgrace upon Christ. It becomes a bad name for the church, okay? It always undermines God, his word, the gospel of salvation. Some arm of the church is always trying to be relevant. They're trying to be modern, hip, cool, attractive. I was in youth ministry for a while. I would get pamphlet, brochure, and everything about how to make my youth group the most relevant youth group in town. I got them every month, okay? And uh, we have the best curriculum. We have the best resources. We have the best, the best, the best, the best. And uh, I had a special place for all of them. Okay, it was the round file, okay? (laughs) 
And all of these ministries, typically, they're communicating to the world that we're really not all that different from you. But the problem is God has commanded us to be different because he doesn't use that word. He uses peculiar. He uses sanctified. He uses holy. We're to be like him. And the church can never be like Christ if it's like the world. The church was created to represent God to the world for its own salvation, but it appears that the church has taken on the role of representing the world to God. It's messy, trying to get God to accept the world as it is. And I always view it when I examine their theology and the fruit of it. You know, Jesus said that narrow is the gate, difficult is the way to eternal life, but the church is trying to make the way easier, and they're trying to push the gate wider. That's what's happening. The truth regarding the church is this. It's an ancient institution. Amen? It's an ancient institution of absolutely unchanging values with timeless, universal implications. It's timeless. Nothing has greater value than what Christ's gospel has to offer. Uh, Our message is the only one with real hope, forgiveness, salvation, redemption, and eternal life. And I think we can all um, get behind this. There's nothing more hip, there's nothing more attractive than biblical love. And if the world isn't attracted to that and to the truth, then we have no other product. We just don't have any other product. But if we try to be relevant to the world, attractive to the world, this is what it's like. It's like a woman engaged to be married who is out flirting with other men. That's what the relevance heresy has always proven to be. It's like a woman who is engaged to be married who is out flirting with other men. That's what the church becomes. It's gross, it's compromise, it always ends badly. You've seen this in many different ways. Uh, the, The church appealing to the world with wacky versions of the Bible. There's a lot of them out there with diversity, equity, inclusivity, even in the leadership. The church has bowed to liberal theology regarding sexuality, the sanctity of life, whether it's in the womb or our elderly, the terminally ill or the developmentally disabled. We've promoted sensual forms of worship, stumbled into a worship service like that one time. You want to talk about awkward? Yeah. Pagan forms of prayer. Her teachers have withdrawn from the teaching of the whole counsel of God. And because we've become so accepting, we almost have nothing to call people to repentance for. Because once everything is allowed, nothing is forbidden. It's crazy. As Paul told the Romans, the Corinthians, he says, the heirs of Israel therefore are learning our admonition. That's Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10.11. So as individuals and as the church, we, we have to just make sure that we're so captivated by Christ, our betrothed, as it were, who has purchased us with his blood, that we're not trying to be attractive to somebody else, that we're not flirting with the world, but we're trying to prepare ourselves for our wedding day. And if we're tempted, we need to flee We need to flee and find his grace, cry out to him. We want to be, as John says, we don't want to be ashamed at his coming. And I think that the the modern church and the individuals in it are going to be horrified when Christ returns. Not not everybody, I'm just saying, by and large. And, And I think there will also be a disappointment that he's returned. Yeah, We want to be ready. In the future, back to our text, Israel you guys, is going to be just as Isaiah describes her in the prophecy, okay? But we should be all of those things 
as the church right now. He says, for a mere moment, I have forsaken you, but with great mercy, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So from the time that Israel rejected Christ, delivered him up to be murdered until the present day, Israel has been forsaken. God has hidden his face from her. And though it's been 2,000 years, it'll be nothing compared to her eternal restoration. That's what he's saying here. For a little while, but it's going to be amazing beyond that. Let me take you through um, Romans 11, 11 through 32. Uh, You can turn there if you want. Uh, Speaking of ethnic Israel, uh, as we've talked about many times, people have said that the things concerning Israel in the Old Testament now belong to the church, the promises and the covenants and, and all of that stuff. But in the New Testament, Paul reaffirms all that has been said about Israel in the Old Testament. And when I say Israel, I mean ethnic Israel. I'm not using the word Israel as code for the church. They're not the same thing. Israel is the wife of God. The church is the bride of Christ. But listen to some of this language. Fits right in with what Isaiah says, but it continues to look forward to the same thing that Isaiah looked forward to. So in Romans 11, 11, and this is going to be a real brief exposition, okay? So you're going to have to hold on. He says, I say then, have they, that's ethnic Israel, stumbled that they should fall? That is the idea of fall permanently. He says, certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So he's saying God extended salvation to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy, that that their God has turned his eyes off of them, his blessing, and he's put it on the church. So it's to, to provoke them to jealousy in order to bring them to salvation. Verse 12, he says, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He's saying their fall will be nothing compared to their recovery. It'll eclipse it. Verse 13 through 15, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He says, magnify my ministry. What a great privilege. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, that's the Jews, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So the recovery, their salvation will be like a whole nation that has been risen from the dead. It's just going to be this crazy miracle in history. Verse 16, he says, For if the first fruit is holy, speaking of the nation of Israel, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. He will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that's Israel, he may not spare you either, the Gentiles, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So he's saying that, that uh, Israel's restoration will be easier than it was for the Gentiles to be saved because the olive tree is their natural tree. We're, we come from a wild olive tree and the branches of that wild olive tree were grafted into the, to the, uh, the domesticated one. When he calls them back, they will easily be grafted back in to God, in other words. Verse 25, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's a quote. It's a prophecy from the Old Testament. So he's saying because of their unbelief, God has struck Israel with partial blindness, but as soon as God's predetermined number of Gentiles are saved, he will remove the partial blindness from Israel and they will flock to Christ. Just prior to the second coming of Christ, the vast majority of Israelis who are left after the time of Jacob's trouble, they will come to faith in Christ. Verse 28, he says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's calling on Israel cannot be changed. It cannot be revoked. It's permanent. Verse 30, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So all of God's redemptive promises to Israel will come to pass. He will draw them back to himself through repentance and faith in Christ. That's the only way that Isaiah's prophecy can be fulfilled, is if they come to Christ. So it seems like a long time coming for Israel, doesn't it? Okay, over 2,000 years. But as Isaiah is saying, it'll be nothing compared to their eternal redemption, during which they will forget their shame and their unbelief. And unbelief is the problem. Yeah, we should not underestimate the wickedness of unbelief. Unbelief is not innocent. Okay? Unbelief communicates to God that he is untrustworthy. He's unbelievable. He's unfaithful. He's untrue. He's unreliable. Unbelief in God is immoral, and it's deeply offensive to him. Let's move on. Verse 9 and 10. He says, For this, saying all of this stuff concerning Israel is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on This passage is extremely important as it relates to the nature of God's covenants and his relationship to ethnic Israel. Okay. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, uh, that's the consummation of it all. Yeah. 
So the covenant that God made with Noah goes, goes like this. He says, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that goes out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So this covenant is with all living things, Okay, for all time, it's unilateral, it's unconditional, it's irrevocable. We've talked about this before. It's unilateral because God does, does all the talking. He sets all of the terms and places all the responsibility on himself. Okay? No human party, okay? not even Noah, nobody says a thing. None of them agree to, were you, did you guys agree to anything? No, but the promise was made to you, right? It's simply made to them by God, they're completely passive. It's unconditional because no conditions are stated. No living thing on earth is required to do anything or they're not required to abstain from anything. And therefore, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are or how sinful humanity becomes, God will never, ever flood the earth again, right? It's unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable promise to all that inhabit the earth, it's for all time. Well, what bearing does that have on Isaiah's prophecy? Yeah. He says, he's saying in the same manner that God promised unilaterally, unconditionally not to flood the earth again. He has promised not to remain angry with Israel or have her under his permanent displeasure. Just as the promise with Noah. That's what he's saying. It's true with this. This is like the covenant to Noah, he says. Okay. It's the same nature in the, of a promise. Just as the water will never flood the whole earth again, God's anger will not remain on Israel forever. He will remove his anger and he will redeem Israel. Also, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, the current elements, all matter will melt with fervent heat. The mountains and the hills will be dissolved, just as Peter says, but his kindness will never depart from Israel. And his promise of peace will never be removed. How much clearer could he be about all that? Okay. It, it amazes me how some can dismiss the, the promises of God to ethnic Israel and give them to the church. That theology dismisses volumes of scripture. It makes the promises of God confusing, saying they're irrelevant to Israel and apply only to the church. But the thing is, there's no... There's no such passage in all of Scripture to support that view. And those who say that these promises are allegorical in some fashion and actually refer to the church have no biblical precedent to sort of advance or push that form of interpretation. There's just nothing in the Scriptures. Isaiah clearly has ethnic Israel in mind, just as Paul did. He says, my brethren according to the flesh. So he says, in, in light of all these, this is, oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you 
shall fall for your sake. The, the prosperity, the peace, the safety promised to Israel is, is unmistakable. Their city, Jerusalem, will be magnificent as it describes how it will be built and their children will know the Lord and they'll be at peace. You know, there's something implied in that statement. What's implied is that the, the children growing up in Israel were always anxious about war. When will the raiders come? When will the enemy be at our walls? When, when, when? Because that was just the history of Israel. The only time that the, the, the capital city was not really invaded was really during the time of David and Solomon. But after that, it was just a complete mess. So God is saying, especially to mothers who, I mean, look at their babies, always anxious. And God says, don't worry, that will never happen again at the time of the redemption of Israel. It'll be done. The city is probably a reference to the new Jerusalem, okay, from Revelation 21, 18 through 21. But notice here that there's, there's something embedded here. It says, as a people, they'll be established in righteousness. Well, that can only come by one way, right? It has to come through Christ, okay? It has to come through Christ. So as soon as that occurs and his kingdom is established, no oppressor will touch them. All their enemies will fall before them. And mind you, that is not the case up to date, is it? Yeah. He says, behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. So those who make weapons, those who make war. God says, I've created both of them. And he says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Now, how many of you guys have heard this, at least that first sentence in that verse quoted in prayer and, and other things? Yeah. Um, how many of you remember it being held in its context? Yeah. Uh, the verse is often spiritualized uh, to mean that Satan and his demons cannot fashion a weapon against us that will succeed or stand. Okay, uh, I've heard that promise quoted many, many times, but never once as Isaiah intended. Not a single time, and, and I've heard it quoted I don't know how many times. So a few things. Um, that's not what the text says, so we can't make it say what we want it to say. That's not what Isaiah meant, so we can't make it mean whatever we want, and it's not applied in that way in the passage. So to apply it, however we feel, is bad practice, okay? It's bad practice. Um, demons are not blacksmiths, right? Okay. This is a promise to ethnic Israel in regard to her future in the messianic kingdom. No weapon, no army will be able to come against her. She will be indestructible, okay? Because God will have her back. Let's look at the actual interpretation. He's saying that because God created the blacksmith, and because God gave the blacksmith his abilities, God knows the limitations of the blacksmith. His weapons are only so effective, right? Humans have limitations. And because God created mankind who fashioned their armies, God knows their capabilities. They're only so powerful. On the day that God is referring, there will be no weapon of war fashioned by a blacksmith. There will no, be no army wielding a weapon by a blacksmith, which will suffice to annul God's promise of peace to Israel, of prosperity and protection. No promise of his 
can be revoked by any created thing, and the only thing not created is God. So there's nothing, nothing that can stop God from fulfilling his prophecy or his promise. He says also, no tongue will be able to bring a legitimate accusation against Israel at that time. Okay, perhaps a reference to the United Nations, <laughs> the constant condemnation of Israel. So in the messianic kingdom, all kingdoms will be united, just not under the United Nations. Okay, but one king. Okay, if God plans to vindicate Israel as he's promised, there's nothing that anyone can do or say about it. It's finished. Every weapon will fail. Every army will fall, and every accusation will be completely refuted. Okay? There's no court higher than God, no army more powerful than God, and no weapon more effective than he. So the promise of God to Israel stand. They're unilateral, unconditional. We could add immutable and irrevocable. And when he brings these particular promises to pass, everybody's going to know. So I know that some of you keep up with like prophecy updates and all of this stuff. Um, I'm getting concerned with the whole prophecy update um, thing because so many prophecies according to them have been fulfilled that there's no prophecies left in the Bible to be fulfilled. You understand? No, I'm saying according to them, they've said so many things of fulfilled prophecy, there's just nothing left to be fulfilled. That, I don't think that many of those prophecies have been fulfilled. I think we're waiting for them, Okay. And the way that they're described in the scriptures, people are going to know. Okay? It's going to be so miraculous. It'll be so obvious that it will bring pause to, to so many people. Okay? And again, the promises specific to Israel, they do, not apply, they do not apply us today as the church. The promises of God to the church, though, will eventually merge in his kingdom with Israel. They will. Okay? For the promises to the church... Though they're different, they're also unilateral, unconditional, immutable, and irrevocable. Okay? So when the kingdom comes, God will bring all the promises to pass to Israel and the church together. We'll likely have different roles in the kingdom, um, but it's, it's all coming. We can't stop it, and um, I can't wait. And I would say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, go ahead and stand up. If you have any questions... Uh, about Israel, ethnic Israel, the promises of God, the church. It's important stuff. As John MacArthur says, get Israel right and you'll get your eschatology right. And he's, he's right. So, All right, Father, Lord, I, um, I know that many dark and terrible things are going to happen before you return. But these are all things that we as humanity have brought upon ourselves. We deserve every last drop of your wrath. But even though all of that will happen, it must happen. Lord, we should be looking forward to you coming and putting an end to sin and evil and pain and illness, Lord, all that stuff. But Lord, also, as, as we can't stop the things that are coming, Lord, you've called us to be a light to the world around us. Help us not to become irrelevant as we try to be relevant to this world. Nothing is more relevant than the gospel because it saves Help us to be honest with our fellow man that they must repent, they must believe, they must become relevant to God, not vice versa. Your word says we must be holy as you are holy. You can't change. We can't make you something you're not. So Lord, help us to represent you well. Help us to be faithful to preach the gospel. And Lord, come soon, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.